man, it's great to see you guys today. Thanks, everybody, for uh, your prayer. Surgery went well Monday. My Achilles tendon is connected once again. Um, so we just got to manage non-weight-bearing for another month or so. Hopefully mid-October I can get down into a boot. I never thought just being able to put a little bit of weight on one foot would be a blessing. But that would be a huge blessing right now uh, at my age especially. So I'm getting a little more tired just trying to navigate. But I got tremendous help. Shannon's been incredible. You all have been incredible. Thank you for your prayers most of all and calls and texts and cards and um, stuff to eat and all that good stuff. If I could just say let's back off on the eating, all right, because I'm already concerned that there won't be a chair for my backside to fit in uh, after going through this for a while. So um, maybe, maybe you bring me some keto dishes and learn, learn, you know, help me learn how to eat a little bit better. So anyway, but thank you. I want to just say welcome to everybody. I'm glad you're here. I, I, um, I wish I was in better shape to express that to you today. But with all my heart, I just want to say I'm glad you're here today. And maybe your first time here uh, and I just pray that you'll feel the hospitality of God's people here. More importantly, that you'll sense the presence of God's Holy Spirit here with us as well. And if you're curious about Grace Life and have some questions, a great place you can start is on the worship guide. Somebody probably handed you that on your way in here today. There's a tearaway tab. There's also a QR code if you want to do that uh, electronically. You can do it that way. But you're welcome to tell us who you are if you want to. You don't have to, but... Um, and then one of the best ways you can really find out more about is just to come to our next Membership Matters class, which is coming up uh, in just a couple of weeks in the month of October. So uh, we'd love to have you to be a part of that. On the back of the worship guide, you can see a number of things there. Um, it doesn't say it, but I think this is a ladies' thing tonight, right? It says porch, porch sitter paint party. And I kind of got fired up about that. But then I thought, well, I think that means just the ladies. So it does mean just the ladies. Um, man, if you're envious of that, we'll try to do you a porch painter sitter party at some point <laughs> in the future. Um, but that's tonight. So, ladies, you can see the information about that. It's not about the painting, by the way, ladies. You might say, I don't care a thing about that. It's about being together. You know, the thing that we keep saying is we're under-fellowshipped right now. We're under-connected right now. We don't have enough gathering together. So that's what tonight is really all about. So even if you just say, hey, I want to sit here and just you know, hold a block of wood. I don't even really care about doing it. I just need to be in the room. It's worth the price of admission, right, just to be there in the room. So come check that out tonight. Wednesday nights are fantastic here, but it's only for ninth grade and under and their parents and our worship ministry because now a school owns this, and, man, they're growing like crazy. Um, we can only minister right now on Wednesday nights to our ninth grade and, and down. I do a parent powwow. I plan to be back here this Wednesday night. I won't be in the office much for a couple of weeks. I want to try to stay safe and healthy and let this thing heal for a couple of weeks. So I'll be here some. But Wednesday is one of those nights I want to be here and hang out with Parent Pow Wow. And so I'd love to have uh, you guys come. Even if you're not a parent, you just want to come hang out with us, do that. But we've got great stuff for the kids, ninth grade and down. Um, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, I'm meeting with them uh, on Sunday nights. And, and we're, we're going to be meeting again. Most of them are in Bible study right now. They'll be in here in the next hour. But if you, if you know... Students in 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, encourage them to come hang out with us on Sunday nights at 6 o'clock. Super excited about what God's doing with that group. It's really a brand new group to us. Uh, we had two huge senior classes that graduated during COVID, 
And with that and with COVID, our high school ministry really sort of got decimated. And so we're sort of hitting reset right now. So everybody's kind of new to each other. So there's a lot of just getting to know each other and some relationship building. And, and I haven't called it this. They don't know this is what I'm teaching them. And I'm teaching the same thing, by the way, on Parent Power on Wednesday nights. Um, but I think you might call it cultural apologetics. Some of you remember a couple of years ago, our high school students, we went deep into apologetics and what you would might call evidentiary apologetics and presuppositional apologetics. And we loved all that. And that was incredible. A lot's changed in a couple of years' time. And, and while I think it's still important that, that we teach our young people and adults, because we don't know a lot about evidentiary apologetics and presuppositional apologetics, that's so important. And that's a great foundation. But, but now it seems that in just a short amount of time, uh, the need for cultural ap apologetics has really risen to the top. You say, I don't, I'm lost. I don't understand. Well, in evidentiary apologetics and presuppositional apologetics, we're kind of helping our students to be able to engage in a grace-filled debate, a grace-filled argument, you might say, about what is truth. How do I really prove, right, that the Bible's legit, that our faith is legit, and things of that nature. That's so important to do. But cultural apologetics is kind of taking that to a different place. That it says, I don't, I'm not really interested in having a debate. I really want to have a dialogue, right? I want to have a conversation with people who are in this culture now who are questioning Christianity. And, and I want to have a conversation with them in such a way that they can see about the gospel. It's not only true, but it's good. Because that's the, that's the question, I think, that's out there in the hearts and minds of people in the world today. In fact, it's not even a question in most people's minds. They've already kind of written it off. It's just not good. It's just not good. And so cultural apologetics and what I'm trying to do with our high school students right now, if you come a parent powwow, this is what we'll be doing, is I just want us to be encouraged about how we can have grace-filled conversations with people in our society today that says, hey, listen, not only is the gospel true, but the gospel is good. And not only is the gospel plausible, it's actually desirable. That you may not realize it, but this is what you desire. And this is what you want. And so we want them to see the gospel in all of its beauty, in all of its grandeur, because there's nothing in this world that compares to the story of and the beauty of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so you pray for us as we're teaching our students about that. It's so important that they get that because there is this narrative that's really um, kind of become so loud in our world right now throughout the globe. That seems to sort of say, even if the gospel, even if Christianity's true, I'm still not interested. Because I just don't think it's good. I don't think it's good for me. I don't think it's good for the, for the world. I don't think it's good for culture. I don't think it's good for society. Christopher Hitchens is a famous atheist of our generation who is, is now passed on. And there were... Christ-loving people that were pointing him to the gospel in the final stretch of his life. And I pray that he put his faith in Christ before he drew his last breath. But Christopher Hitchens famously said, religion poisons everything, right? And so, and so that's a pretty popular mindset right now, that religion is what ails the world. Uh, Karl Marx famously said that religion is the opium of the people. That's, that's what's wrong with us. 
and even in more modern times back in the 30s and 40s, a guy by the name of Antonio Gramsci, he said this, socialism is precisely the religion that must overwhelm Christianity. And a lot of what we're seeing happen in the world today and the worldviews that are emerging are really rooted a lot in Marx and Gramsci and we need to overthrow Christianity so we can usher in this new system that is going to actually be good for the world and good for society, right? And we're sitting here going, no, 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 listen, the gospel is not only true, it's good. And, and, and we don't want to argue that. We don't want to debate that. We want to talk about it. Because here, here's what I believe. I, I'm not afraid of our students having conversations Amen. with other students who may have different worldviews. I want that to happen. I want you to have conversations with people who have other worldviews because I believe the truth is always going to win out. I believe the truth is what sets people free. So now one of the big arguments in the world right now about why Christianity in particular is not good is this idea that Christianity, Christianity is sort of the Anglo religion of Western civilization. That, that Christianity is uh, sort of the white man's religion and that it's fraught with undercurrents of bigotry and racism. And that's sort of, you may be sitting here going, I've never heard that in my life, but, but that's kind of what's being spun out there in the world to a, a lot of people, especially to our young people. And so I'm excited today that I have God's word in front of me, and I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 10 today. Because Acts chapter 10 is one of those places in Scripture that we can see clearly that so much of this narrative in the world that's happening right now is so false. It's so absolutely incorrect and untrue. And that actually the kingdom of God is a big and beautiful and diverse kingdom. And man, that's what I want our students to understand tonight by the time we walk out of that place tonight or roll out of that place tonight is that if you're in Christ, you are a part of the most exciting thing that has ever happened to planet Earth. Amen. The kingdom of heaven has come. Jesus is redeeming people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you are now not only a citizen of this particular place where you may live today, but you're a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, which is the biggest and the most beautiful and the most diverse, glorious thing that mankind has ever or will ever see. So Acts chapter 10, let's go. I'm so glad you're here for this today. Acts chapter 10. You know, last week we were in Acts chapter 9. Obviously, we're working our way through the book of Acts. And last week we saw this Saul, right? He was a monster. He was a terrorist wreaking all kinds of havoc and hurt and harm upon followers of Jesus. And he's on his way to Damascus to continue that mission. And Jesus stops him cold in his tracks at high noon and Saul comes to know the Lord personally as his Savior. Then there's this Ananias guy in Damascus that God wakes up and says, you've got to go down to this certain house on Straight Street and lay your hands on Saul. Yeah, that's Saul, the same one who was coming up here to kill you. Go put your hands on him because I'm doing something in his life and in his world. And Saul then begins to preach the gospel around Damascus and the people want to kill him. And some people have to lower him through a basket, right? You might remember that. And they get him out to Jerusalem. But then nobody wants him to come to church in Jerusalem. They're all scared of him because they know who this guy is. They know what he's done already in Jerusalem in his past. But this one guy, a relentless encourager by the name of Barnabas, takes him to meet with the apostles and vouches for him and says, this guy's the real deal. God has transformed this person. He has saved him. He is a whole different person. And so the rest of chapter 9 
of Acts centers around Peter. Peter's the main leader of the church there in Jerusalem so far in the book of Acts. And we find in the rest of chapter 9, Peter's traveling around ministering to a lot of people. The gospel's being preached. It is good. It is true. It is plausible, to say the least. And it is desirable. And God's doing great things through Peter. And then interestingly enough, verse 43, if you'll look at that, chapter 9. By the way, don't the media, they're incredible, this team back here. But I, I'm only right now 48 hours off of drugs. <laughs> Tommy, I thought about you the other day, my man. It's the first time I'd ever experienced that. They had, they had me lay on my stomach, and they put the oxygen in my nose. And this lady, she said something funny to me about what she's about to do to me. And I remember her thumb doing that to the needle, and that's all I remember. I was out like a light, praise the Lord. And don't remember much between that and thank God the nerve block was still working long enough that I got to go to Elijah's football game. I remember most of the football game, but everything in between is kind of hazy and weird. So the whole week sort of been a little bit like that because oh, I don't do, I don't do you know, like prescription stuff a lot. Thank the Lord, been healthy. And so um, said all that to say the media team didn't get a fair chance um, to put things together today. So anything they have at all is quite miraculous because I think Davey got my email last night about 10 o'clock. Right? And it's hard enough to work on a sermon when you're on drugs. <laughs> but it's doubly hard to work on a sermon when you're on drugs during football season. Amen? <laughs> uh, but praise the Lord, we're getting there. So, um, so y'all just sort of bear with us today. I know you will, and I thank you for that. This is so weird. Chapter 9 ends with this verse. And Peter stayed a long time in Joppa, living with Simon, a tanner of hides. Now, if you go to Israel with me next year, we're going to go to Simon's house. It's still there. You're going to get to go to Joppa and see the actual house where Peter stayed in the rooftop where what's going to happen later in our text is going to happen. But here's what's weird about this. Peter's living with a, a tanner of hides. Peter is a diehard Jew, by the way. I mean, devout as they come. Judaism is all that he has ever known. But God is doing something in Peter's life. God is expanding Peter's understanding. He's expanding his concepts of who God is and what his kingdom is about. God's working on Peter. God's teaching Peter more about the, about the grace of God, right? As opposed to the works of man. And that's the only good explanation I can have of why Peter is living for a long period of time, maybe a couple of years, at this house of a tanner of hides. There is no other really good explanation. The only other one I thought of is maybe he's hiding out. You know, maybe people thought the last place this guy would ever be is living with a tanner. It's either that or God's just simply changing Peter's heart. And you say, well, what do you mean? Well, if you were a devout Jew... You had nothing to do with a person in the occupation of being a tanner. They were considered to be unclean. Among devout Jews, tanners ranked right there with people who had leprosy. You were unclean. You had no place in society. You could not interact with one another. You could not dwell with one another. You could not dine with one another. You could not worship with one another. They were considered to be unclean because of the type of work that they did, right? They, if you don't know what a tanner is, they took dead animals, 
And some of these by the Jewish people were considered to be both clean and unclean. And, and they would skin those animals. And then they had a process. And part of this process meant that they had to go and collect dung, by the way, from wherever they could get it, because that was part of the process. It was a horrible, sickening uh, occupation to find yourself in, necessary nonetheless, um, but because they were dealing with dead animals, especially what the Jews considered dead, unclean animals, these people were ostracized from society. The reason Simon lives down by the Mediterranean Sea is because you needed a lot of salt water to be involved in this tanning process. Not only that, but you wanted to be in an area like that that had a pretty consistent breeze coming off the sea to try to dissipate the putrid smell <laughs> of that industry, right, of being a tanner. Now, here's how crazy it was. Under Jewish law, I think there were only two reasons a woman could divorce her husband. One is if he got leprosy. Two is if she could no longer stand his occupation of being a tanner. She could have married him knowing he's a tanner, but if it just got too much for her to handle, she was allowed by what I understand, by Jewish law, to be able to divorce him. She could just say, I can't take it anymore. And, and, and the Jewish leaders would go, no wonder, right? I mean, that's just kind of how you understood what it was that a tanner did. One commentator, and this is a little graphic, so forgive me here, but one commentator said this, quote, a tannery ranked right up there with public urinals in the Jewish world. Unclean, unholy, filthy. And that's where Peter's living for a couple of years. He, he's not living in the lap of luxury, right? He, he's living in this kind of place in Acts 9 and 10. But here's what's cool. It's precisely there in that place that no self-respecting Jew or Gentile would want to be caught dead. No pun intended. It's precisely in that place that Peter's mind and Peter's heart begin to be changed by God. That God begins to expand his understanding and his view of the kingdom. And it's there in a place like that, that Peter begins to understand, let me say this again, just how big and how beautiful and how diverse the kingdom of God on earth as it is in heaven is, truly. But as I said earlier, there's people today who want to tell us otherwise. And it's simply not true. The truth is today, Christianity is the most diverse belief system in the world. Right now, today, there's roughly an equal amount of European Christians, African Christians, Latino Christians, a rapidly growing number of Asian Christians, Middle Eastern Christians. It's a beautiful thing that God is doing through his church all around the world Today And all that diversity that we see today, it starts right here in Acts chapter 10. This is an epic moment in history. The world is today what it is because of what happens at this smelly Tanner's home here in Acts chapter 10. In Acts 10, God's going to make it clear to Peter and to the rest of the world that Christ, his kingdom, his church, what some might call Christianity is not for one country, it's not for one culture, it's not for one race, it's not for one language, that Christ and his church and his kingdom is for people from every country and every culture and every race. 
and every language. So what happens here in Acts 10 is huge, and I'm glad you're here for it. So let's go. Acts chapter 10. And Caesarea, it's about 30 miles north of the sea. I'll try to bring a map next week so we can look at that. It's about 30 miles north of where Peter is down in Joppa, also situated on the very same sea. There lived a Roman army officer named Cornelius, who was the captain of the Italian regiment. All right, so we got this rough, tough, dignified Italian Roman soldier here, right? So Caesarea, by the way, is this, and that's another place we'll get to go and check out when you go with me. Uh, it's this beautiful coastal town that at this time was mainly inhabited by people who either worked for the Roman government or people who were in the Roman military. So by and large, far and far away, it was mostly Romans, Italians, Gentile people that were living in Caesarea. And that explains why a Roman army officer by the name of Cornelius is living there. Verse 2 said, He was a devout, God-fearing man, as was everyone in his household. He gave generously to the poor, and he prayed regularly to God. Now, he's not saved. He doesn't know the gospel. He's never heard the gospel. He needs salvation. But this is a person whose heart is already warm toward God. His heart's already tender toward the things of God. You might say the Holy Spirit has already been working in his life to draw him to Jesus and to salvation in Christ. And, you know, the Bible says this, and I think, I think Cornelius is a good example of this. I think he's searching, right? He's searching for truth and for salvation. He's searching to know God. And the Bible says that God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek after him. I don't understand everything about how God saves people all around the world, but I understand this much. There's nobody who searches after God that God is not going to reveal himself to in some way to draw them further and further to the truth of the gospel so they can understand who Jesus is. I think this is what's going on with Cornelius. And verse 3 says, One afternoon, about 3 o'clock, he had a vision in which he saw an angel of God coming toward him. Cornelius, the angel said. Think about it. It's 3 o'clock in the afternoon, right? Saul met Jesus on the road to Damascus. At what time? High noon, right? So 3 o'clock in the afternoon, Cornelius has this vision. Verse 4, Cornelius stared at him, that's the angel of God, in terror. What is it, sir? He asked the angel. Now, a guy like Cornelius is not typically given to fear. But he's afraid here. And he speaks to this angel like he would a five-star general. What is it, sir? And the angel replied, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have been received by God as an offering. Now send some men to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He is staying with Simon, a tanner, who lives near the seashore. Now if you're wondering, why, does, why, does, why doesn't God just save Cornelius right there? Why doesn't the angel right there go, Let me tell you about Jesus. He loves you. He's got a plan for your life. He died on the cross. He rose from the dead. Repent and believe on him right now and be saved. Why doesn't he do that? Because God is calling Cornelius to act on faith. What does James say about faith? Faith that is without works is what? It's dead. He's calling Cornelius to an active faith here. James says faith without works is dead. Trevor's here today. I didn't plan to say this. Where are you, Trevor? I saw you coming. Well, there he is. Man, Trevor's had works in his life. I found this out last Sunday. Trevor joined our church and been serving the Lord here at our church. But he came to realize a couple of Wednesdays ago that 
there wasn't a real faith that was married to those works. A couple of Wednesdays ago, Trevor Wolf gave his life to Jesus, and he shared that with me last Sunday after church. And so I, he told me that the day that I mentioned just that same Sunday before I mentioned about Nathan East, another young man in our church, very similar story, who last year came up after a church service and said, I've been in church all my life. I've done all the right things. I've checked all the boxes, but I've never truly been born again. I need to be saved. And Trevor heard that, and God used that to speak to his life. Make sure today that your faith is real. I hope that you, you will, that you'll do that. Verse 7 says, As soon as the angel was gone, Cornelius called two of his household servants and a devout soldier, one of his personal attendants, and he told them what happened, and he sent them off to Joppa. The next day, as Cornelius' messengers were nearing the town, Peter went up on the flat roof to pray. By the way, if you lived at a tanner's house, you'd probably spend a lot of time on the roof, right? With your nose way up in the air to try to breathe a little bit. It's a good place to be. It's also a place where they spent just generally a lot of time. Peter goes up there to pray. It's about noon. Verse 10 says he's hungry. But while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. Just like God was preparing Cornelius to receive the gospel, God is now about to prepare Peter to share the gospel. To share the gospel with somebody that if Peter was left to his own self, he probably never would have shared the gospel. But God is working in Peter's life. Up to this point, you might say that Peter's been somewhat of a bigot. He has. I think he would admit that much today. But God's at work in Peter's life. I've had people tell me, you know, we're not coming to Grace Life because there's racists at that church. There, there are people here that probably struggle with the sin of racism. I think it would be dishonest to say anything less. Jeremiah, he's black. You know what, Jeremiah? Anybody tell you? <laughs> you can be black and be racist, right? You can be a black Christian and struggle with racism, can't you? Just like you can be a white Christian and struggle with racism. Peter struggled with that. You know what? God loves Peter enough that he's still working on it. And I don't know what the sin is that you struggle with today. Whatever it may be, I'm telling you, God says, come just as you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. Because as long as that sin continues to entangle you in your life, you are missing out on God's best. You're, you're not going to know the fullness of joy that God died on the cross that you might have. So God's working on Peter, right? He, he, he was already called to go to Samaria when that uh, revival broke out through Philip's preaching. And he laid hands on those half-Jews, half-Gentiles. God's working on him. He had heard about the Ethiopian who took the gospel back to Africa. I mean, God's warming Peter's heart up. He's changing him. But Peter needs one more big push from God in this process of transformation. And that's what's happening here in chapter 10. Here comes the big push. Verse 11. He's in this trance and he saw the sky open. And something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners. It's kind of like a big tarp. And it's kind of maybe tied by the four corners, you know, kind of up at the top here like that. And verse 12 says, In the sheet were all sorts of animals, reptiles and birds. And then a voice said to him, Get up, Peter. Kill and eat them. No, Lord, Peter declared. You might remember Peter never had a problem telling Jesus no. <laughs> right? They went around a few times and Peter still has that about him. No, Lord, Peter declared. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure. 
and unclean. So as far as Peter's concerned, this sheet is full of animals that are both clean and unclean. That is animals that the Jews embraced as acceptable to eat and not acceptable, forbidden by God to eat. If you want to read the entire grocery list of what God had told the Jewish people, you can eat this, you can't eat that, then you can go to Leviticus chapter 11 later on today. You probably haven't read that during your quiet time in quite a while, but you could go check that out if you want to. And the question is going to come up, why? I mean, why did God restrict their diet like that? Why did God say some things were clean and some things were unclean? Well, I think one, probably not the main reason, but a reason may have been for physical reasons. You know, God gives them those laws in the time that they're in the wilderness together. That's a couple million people that are going to be living together in close quarters in the wilderness for about 40 years. And so it'd be really quite easy to have some type of outbreak that comes into the camp and could just really wipe out. Uh, those people. And remember, he's bringing the Messiah. He's promised to do that. He's bringing the Messiah through the Jewish people. But I think more importantly than the physical reason is the spiritual reason. They were about to go into a land that was inhabited by lots of people groups that worshipped false gods. And the way these other people groups celebrated in that era is they would come together and they would eat. And they would worship their gods this way. And they would engage in all types of sinful behavior as they feasted together. And so God is telling his people, there's things that you're allowed to eat and things that you're not allowed to eat because he was setting them apart from the people who worshiped other gods so that they wouldn't engage in that kind of behavior and that kind of activity so their hearts wouldn't be lured away into false religions, into worshiping false gods. But as you know, even with these dietary restrictions in place, their hearts often still got lured away, right, to worship false gods. So Peter knew that passage from Leviticus. He knew it well. He's lived his entire life by it. And here he is. He's telling God, God, I hear what you're saying, but that's going to be a no for me because I've never eaten that stuff. Pretty doggone proud of that. And I'm not about to start eating that stuff now. Verse 15, but the voice spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. Verse 16, the same vision was repeated three times. It kind of takes Peter three times a lot of times to get it through his thick head. Have you noticed that? <laughs> so three times this sheet with clean and unclean animals lowers down out of heaven and goes back up into heaven, then again and again and again and again, right? The same vision was repeated three times, and the sheet was suddenly pulled up to heaven. What is, what is this? vision mean? We'll try to cover this quickly because I'm already running out of time. I think I talk slower when I'm sitting down. Y'all notice that? I think the first thing here is God's telling Peter that the Old Testament Jewish dietary laws, they're abolished. They're not, they're not active anymore. Why not? Because now the Messiah has come, right? The Messiah, the promise has been fulfilled that he's come through the Jewish people. The hope of the nations has come. He's lived a perfect, sinless life. He died a atoning death on the cross, and God has raised him from the dead. There no longer now needs to be division or separation between Jews and Gentiles. In fact, because of the gospel, just the opposite now is what God is doing. He is joining together the Jews and the Gentiles as one in the kingdom of God in this church, in what we call 
the body of Christ, a wonderful, beautiful thing that God is doing here. And this sheet and the clean and unclean animals in it is a picture of the church, right? And it's filled with Jews and Gentiles, people from every tribe and tongue and nation. That's the point that God's making here with this vision. And like the church, by the way, this sheet comes down out of heaven. That's how the church got here. The Holy Spirit came down to heaven, right? And established the church. And then what happened to the sheet at the end of the vision? It went back into heaven. What's going to happen to the church? One day, Jesus is going to call the church home, filled with people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And he's going to take us to live with him forever. Verse 17, Peter was very perplexed. What could this vision mean? God's about to connect the dots for him. Just then the men sent by Cornelius. These are Gentile men sent by a Gentile man. They found Simon's house. Standing outside the gate, they asked if a man named Simon Peter was staying there. Meanwhile, as Peter was puzzling over the vision, the Holy Spirit said to him, Three men have come looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and go with them without hesitation. Don't worry, for I've sent them. So Peter went down and said, I'm the man you're looking for. Why have you come? And they said, we were sent by Cornelius, a Roman officer. He's a devout and God-fearing man, well-respected by all the Jews. A holy angel instructed him to summon you to his house so that, you can hear, so that he can hear your message. So Peter invited the men to stay for the night. The next day, he went with them, accompanied by some of the brothers from Joppa. Now, this is where we're beginning to see that the gospel is changing everything. Changing everything about people and their hearts and the world and culture and society up until this point, the Jews looked at the Gentiles as only being fit to be kindling for the fires of hell. If you had a Jewish son and he married a Gentile daughter, you would have a funeral for your son. That's what you did. That's how deep the division was between these people. The Gentiles saw Jewish people as only being good for one thing. That's to be their slaves. That was it. This was a huge division that existed between them. It was unheard of that they would get together and eat together, much less that they would stay in each other's home. But here's Peter inviting these Gentiles to eat in the tanner's home and to spend the night. You've got these Gentiles taking up a night's residence at the Dead Meat Inn. And then Peter and his Jewish friends, they're going to go stay with Cornelius. A Gentile, verse 24 says, They arrived in Caesarea the following day. Cornelius was waiting for them and had called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered his home, you know the gospel's changing stuff. Peter just stepped over a threshold he never thought he was allowed to step over or could step over. This is huge. The gospel in this moment just went to the Gentiles. And everybody in this room that I know of at least ought to be pretty fired up about this because as far as I know, everybody in here is a Gentile. This is a big moment. Peter entered his home. Cornelius fell at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter pulled him up and said, Stand up. I'm a human being just like you. That again is a breakthrough. Peter sees he's a man. Cornelius is a man. Just like Peter's a man. So they talked together. They went inside where many others were assembled. Peter told them, You know it's against our laws. For a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me 
that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for. Now tell me, why did you send for me? Let me tell you, Cornelius didn't send for him because he was interested in social justice. Cornelius needed to be saved. That was the need of his heart and of his life. Cornelius replied, four days ago I was praying in my house about this same time, three o'clock in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in dazzling clothes was standing in front of me. He told me, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your gifts to the poor have been noticed by God. Now send messengers to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He's staying in the home of Simon, a tanner who lives near the seashore. So I sent for you at once and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given to you. Then Peter replied, watch this. I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. God has opened Peter's eyes to see what Jesus wants his kingdom to be. What Jesus died for his church to be. Several decades later, the Apostle Paul would speak to that in a book called Ephesians, a letter he wrote to the Christians at Ephesus. Here's what he says. Listen, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11. Paul says, don't forget that you Gentiles used to be outsiders. You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision, even though it affected only their bodies, not their hearts. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now you have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you've been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Amen. For Christ himself has brought peace to us, Gentiles. Amen. He's brought peace to us. He united Jews and Gentiles into one people. When in his own body on the cross, he broke down the wall of hostility that separated us. He did this by ending the system of law with its commandments and regulations. He made peace between Jews and Gentiles by creating in himself one new people from the two groups. Together as one body, Christ reconciled both groups to God by means of his death on the cross. And our hostility toward each other was put to death. Good news, y'all. We don't have to work for unity we just walk in it. We have it because of what Christ has already done. If you believe anything less than that, you do not believe the gospel. Where was I? What verse to leave off of? 17? He brought this good news. I'm just enjoying reading this. I want to I stand up. You down to he brought this good news of peace to you Gentiles who were far away from him and peace to the Jews who were near. Now all of us can come to the Father through the same Holy Spirit because of what Christ has done for us. So now you Gentiles are no longer strangers and foreigners. You are citizens along with all of God's holy people. You are members of God's family. Together we are his house built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him becoming a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. This is beautiful, right? Peter 
replies to Cornelius' question in verse 34. I see very clearly that God shows no favoritism. In every nation, He accepts those who fear Him and who do what is right. This is the message of good news for the people of Israel, that there is peace with God through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what happened throughout Judea, beginning in Galilee, after John began preaching the message of baptism. And you know that God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Then Jesus went around doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil for God was with him and we apostles are witnesses of all he did throughout Judea and Jerusalem they put him to death by hanging him on a cross but God raised him to life on the third day then God allowed him to appear not to the general public but to us whom God had chosen in advance to be his witnesses we were those who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead and he ordered us to preach everywhere this is Peter saying Cornelius this good news started with the Jews but it doesn't end with us and I'm coming to understand that now And to testify that Jesus is the one appointed by God to be the judge of all, the living and the dead. He is the one of all the prophets testified about, saying that everyone who believes in him will have their sins forgiven through his name. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell upon all who were listening to the message. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too, for they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. And then Peter asked, can anybody object to their being baptized now that they've received the Holy Spirit just as we did. So he gave orders for them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Afterward, Cornelius asked him to stay with them for several days. Ain't that good? This is what I want to tell our students tonight. Quit being ashamed of who you are. Quit being ashamed of your faith. Quit letting other people who don't know Jesus and don't know the gospel tell you what the gospel's about. Let me tell you what the gospel is about. The gospel is Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, died to redeem sinners from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Let me wrap this up real quick. We're running out of time by trying to be as clear as I can. Despite what you may hear, the kingdom of God is a big and it is a beautiful And it is a diverse kingdom. Let me tell you why, real quick. The founder of our faith, Jesus, he created diversity. It came from him. Diversity was created by him. Hey, how do you know that? Because John 1 says, in the beginning, the Word, capital W, Word, talking about a person here, already existed. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created except through him and get down to verse 14 it says the word became flesh it's jesus right jesus is the creator and he created everything he created every person we see every person you see is made by god anglo asian latino african they're all made by god diversity is his idea the founder of this religion that's called christianity he created diversity not only did he create diversity he created equality Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. Stamped his image on people, all kinds of people. Old people are stamped with the image of God. Young people, stamped with the image of God. Unborn people, stamped with the image of God. People of all kinds of shapes and colors and sizes stamped. Each one of us bears an equally stamped image of God upon our life. 
I remember hearing the great preacher E.V. Hill one time, I think as a Promise Keepers rally a long time ago, and he was talking about this passage and how God picked up dirt and blew into it and made human beings. And he said, what is one pile of dirt doing talking down to another pile of dirt? <laughs> We're all equal as image bearers in the sight of God. The only difference now is some have come to be his sons and his daughters by grace alone, through faith in Christ alone, and others have not yet. But even those that have not yet, we cannot ever forget they are the image bearers of God. And the way you deal with them and talk to them and treat them ought to reflect what you know to be true about them. That They bear his image. The third thing that I just want to be clear about is this. Jesus commands us to love people who are different from us. In verse uh, 29 of Mark chapter 12, Jesus replied, and by the way, Jesus was and is a dark-skinned, dark-eyed, Middle Eastern Jewish fellow. And he says, the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord, and you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind, and all your strength. The second one is equally important, love your neighbor as yourself. Then somebody speaks up, and they go, who's our neighbor? And so Jesus tells this story, right? This Jewish fella gets beat up by a bunch of robbers. He's thrown over in the ditch, left for dead. A couple other Jewish people that you think would care about him, they come by and they just pass him on by. They don't want to fool with him. But then a Samaritan, their sworn enemy, right? He can't leave the man in the ditch. He pulls him out and he picks him up. He bandages up his wounds and then he takes him to a hotel where he gives him over to the care of somebody else. He says, I'll come back and I'll check on him. Jesus is blowing the minds of people in his ministry. He's breaking cultural and racial boundaries, blowing their minds. Like he blew the disciples' minds when he says, we're going through Samaria. They're like, no, we're not. Yeah, we are. We're Jews. We don't go through Samaria, Jesus. I do. And then he sits at a well. Well, not just with a Samaritan, by the way, but a woman. That's a whole other conversation woman and not just any woman the woman with the worst reputation in the whole town the reason she's at the well in the middle of the day because none of the other women won't have anything to do with her but Jesus does he's in the people he called us to be in the people people who are different from us I don't think we really reflect Jesus when we're just in the people who are like us we only really reflect Jesus when we learn how to be in the people who are also different from us. Fourth thing I want to say is this. Jesus started the most diverse global movement in history. He did that. It's called the church. Matthew 28, final words before he goes back into heaven. He says, therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're seeing this happen in the book of Acts, right? It starts with the Jews and Samaritans and the Africans, and now it's got to an Italian I mean, we all really know why Peter stayed in that house for three days, right? The food was excellent, right? Can we just agree on that? Come on, y'all. Who wouldn't? Way, way better than the Tanner's house. I would rather smell the ravioli, right, than the dead animals and all that stuff. As I told you earlier today, Christianity is the most diverse belief system in the world. It's beautiful. Don't be ashamed, y'all. We're a part of something amazing, beautiful world-changing that Jesus Christ, God, very God, has 
purchased by his blood. The last thing I want to say is this. Jesus' mission of bringing all kinds of people into his kingdom never going to be stopped. So how do you know that? Because I've read the end of the story. Revelation chapter 7, verse 9 says this, After this I saw a vast crowd, too great to count from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. A multitude, y'all, of people from every tongue. And y'all know how many tribes have gone out of existence that we've never even heard of? And some of them are going to be there on that day? I mean, we got shades of melanin that have existed in the course of human history that we've never laid our eyes on, and we're going to get to stand beside some of those people and worship Jesus one day? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's my Jesus that did that. He's the creator of diversity. He's the creator of equality. He's the one that has called us to love people who are different from us. He started this diverse global movement, and he's going to complete it to the very end. God alone does that. His grace alone does that. The gospel alone does that. This is why Paul can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. And, and I, I just, I'm so concerned that right now there's a lot of people who call themselves Christians who are hiding in the shadows. You've been pushed around to believe that you ought to be ashamed. That you call yourself a Christian. Because look at all the problems. And nobody's sitting here today, today denying that unfortunately, oftentimes, we as Jesus' followers often misrepresent Jesus. But let's make this about Jesus. And then when it comes to Jesus and who he is and what he's done and what his kingdom is about and what he's doing in his church, there's nothing there to be ashamed of. We stand proud of our Savior, thankful and humble. That he loves sinners like us. And he's brought us in to be a part of what he's doing in this life and what we're going to get to enjoy in the life to come. This world's got a whole lot of problems, y'all, but it's not going to be solved by men who are sick with sin. The world and its problems aren't going to be solved by solutions that are sick with sin. The hope for this world is Jesus Christ. His gospel. It's not only true, it's good. It's not only plausible, it's desirable. And I pray you perceive that gospel today. I pray like Trevor knows today, he's saved. He's ready to profess that through baptism. I pray you, you're there. If not, I'd get there today. Because this sheet that we're in is going back up soon. And you want to make sure you're in that. And it's only by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. God, we bow our hearts before you today. Absolutely stunned and in awe of what a beautiful thing this is, Jesus, that you are creating through your death on the cross and victory over the grave. A bride for yourself that's too big and too beautiful to, to be represented by only one part of this world. To even get close to fully reflecting your glory, it will require 
representation from every tongue and every tribe and every nation. God, I pray for people who may be in this room today that, like we all do from time to time, we struggle with loving our neighbor. We've heard that phrase tossed around a a whole lot, but the reality is we just struggle with that sometimes because we sort of typecast people and put them in a box and just make up our mind that they're out and we're in. I'm grateful today that you love us like you loved Peter. You met him right where he was. And you began to change his heart. God, would you change mine today where it needs to look more like yours? Would you do that for my brothers and sisters in the room today? We want to look like and live like you, Jesus. Help us to walk in that. God, I pray that today that we would have joy in our heart and we would be excited to have dialogue with other people about our faith, about our Jesus, about his kingdom. That we would bask in the glorious truth of it and the goodness of it. And that people would sense and hear and see in us that it's not only plausible, it's desirable that they would want it. And God, I pray if there's anybody here today like Cornelius, maybe this week or even in the last few moments, you've been making their hearts sensitive and tender toward you. I pray that now is the time that they would say, I'm ready. I want to know Jesus. I want to trust him. I want to be saved. Today's the day. Hey, if that's you today, We're a little old school around here. I'm not going to be able to stand at the altar and say, come there and talk to me. I'm going to say, you're going to actually have to walk up a step or two and come here and have a conversation with me real quick. I just want to make sure you know Jesus before you walk out of here today. Don't worry about what anybody thinks. I love these people in this room. They're not worth worrying about what they think. They'll tell you the same thing. They want you to know Jesus. Come on church let's praise the one who gave us salvation who's made us one with his people all over the world for now and for all of eternity let's stand let's honor him let's worship him let's praise him he's worthy amen amen